The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This conversation that I had with Kevin was really interesting in that it is a creative way to deal with the changing shifts in the market. Um, We all know clients are operating at a faster pace and the the requirement for information and data and insights, it just continues to mirror that fast pace. Kevin and I actually talk about something very interesting and that is to go to the very beginning of product concept development. Traditionally, what we do is uh, we develop concepts based on observational research, what we know is missing or kind of in that white space, and then develop concepts and test them. Kevin's actually developed a methodology where you actually can ideate with the consumer early to be able to develop product concepts that are truly formed and developed by the consumer. Ideally, what does this do? This hopefully reduces the risk for new product concepts and development to fail. It potentially could speed the cycle in terms of being able to get through the different decision points as it relates to product launches because the concept is formulated and validated by the consumers before it's even researched. Take a listen. Today, I have Kevin Lani, CEO of KLL Communications, joining me today on the podcast, and we're going to talk about innovation. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Seema. It's nice to be here. Nice to be on the phone with you, I should say. Yeah, thank you. Although with technology, nobody would ever know, right? <laughs> exactly. As far as knows, we're sitting right across from each other. That's right. So, Kevin, you've been in the industry, in the traditional MR business for many years. Tell us a little bit about your company and what you focus on. Fair. I like the many years. Well, that just means you're an expert. I like that, actually. You know, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. It's like, you know, after a while, I've started to kind of lose track of it myself. Yeah. And you embrace it. I do. I absolutely embrace it. I mean, I actually got into market research like most of us. I stumbled into it. I actually started out at College of Engineering at Rutgers. And then I realized, that, oh, gosh, I'm not going to be an engineer like my dad. I mean, he was good at it. And then I stumbled into business and psychology. And then my final semester senior year, I took a course in market research. And it's like, wow, this is using a lot of the disciplines I learned. So I actually got into MR right out of college. I mean, even doing intercept interviews for an older division of market facts back in the day. So I guess that does, you know, kind of age me a little bit in that regard. But to your point, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, I started uh, KL Communications way back in 1996 in the era you've got mail, you know, like with uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and, you know, ALL and all that good stuff. So that was really avant-garde to start an online research company at the time. But, you know, we've been doing it, obviously, for 20 plus years. We've been doing online communities and panels, which is really our bread and butter, for over 20 years. 
And more recently, to your point, we've been focusing more and more on the potential of the customer and, you know, customer centricity as it relates to product innovation. And I've been trying to build some new tools that could help make that happen. What's interesting, yeah, I just came back from SMR and we we're talking about kind of our overall industry when you combine you know, adjacent industries to traditional MR and clearly the online community space and more kind of quasi online versus communities and qual seems to be a segment that's growing and it's growing healthily. I don't know if that's a word, but it seems to be growing and taking hold for many brands. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a very viable word, Seema. Thank you. You know, online communities, they really have been growing. And I think first and foremost, you know, because we do like customer journey mapping, et cetera. I mean, it's a really cost-effective infrastructure for an organization to be able to do a lot of their qual work. So you can have it, you know, it's like a 24-7 infrastructure and you can do the cost comparisons about what it would take to do these as ad hoc projects as opposed to running them through the community and the panel. So I think that's one of the reasons that they've been gaining more and more in acceptance. Are you finding within the organizations, within your client organizations, there's somebody who's dedicated to ensuring that community is leveraged on a consistent basis, meaning there's a partnership with you and your company on the brand side to ensure that it's continuously being mined and leveraged for business value on the brand side? Absolutely. I mean, we look at the communities as really like an internal brand for the organization. And so it's, it's one of the things that we look to do is, A, to your point, we definitely need a insights champion that can help to point out the benefits and the potential of the community. Again, because of the ability to do things really quickly, that is often a, a great interest to potential clients. Another thing that we do that we feel is a good best practice with an online community, and again, promoting it as a brand, is we look to do at least quarterly in-person presentations. And quite frankly, these are shameless self-promotions for branding purposes where we share success stories. And often we try to invite potential users thereof. In so doing, we look to you know, make the brand uh, stickier, more entrenched within the organization. So that's, uh, you know, one of the things that we've done over the years is sort of a best practice. But to your point, I mean, really, you do need the internal champion within the organization to make sure it succeeds. And I understand, Kevin, that some of your communities you've managed for brands for, you know, five plus years. Give us a little bit of how that's evolved for you. I don't want to have you compromise any client privacy, but just it'd be great for to understand you know, where you started and where that evolution occurred to be able to have a community relationship with a brand for five plus years? Well, you know, one of the things we look to do is establish the value proposition of the community at the beginning. We look to do that both from the participant's point of view, but also from the client's perspective. In other words, what would they be using it for? Who would be the beneficiaries within their uh, constituents? And also, one of the things we try to do is focus a bit on some strategic learnings as well, because I think that helps to make it more longitudinal and here in the organization. So it's not just simply being used for tactical, nice to know things. And, you know, and then again, in the quarterly presentations, we look to see like, how can we better position this? And so to your point, Seema, I mean, five years to us is actually sort of a moderate success. We've had some of our communities that are getting closer to 20 years, quite a few of them are running 10 plus years. So 
the game plan is, and you know, it's obviously that you know benefits the business model, but we do look to have it run sort of <laughs> in perpetuity as much as possible. Well, I know that we talk a lot about participant engagement and making sure that we're respectful of the experience for participants in any type of research. So share a little bit about how do you ensure that that experience is enjoyable, beneficial, and a respondent, or I should say participant, feels valued? I actually, you know, one of the things that in earlier in my career, before I launched, you know, KL, I mean, I actually managed a quant call center. It always amazed me that we were able to keep these people on the phone for such a long period of time. And, you know, I've always been sensitive to the fact of like, well, you know, what sane person really would want to stay with our community for a period of time. So we are sensitive to the type of exercise and making sure that we set up an intrinsic and extrinsic incentive system. I mean, we do have, you know, obviously you can earn points and you get some redemption, but it's relatively minor compared to what they could be earning, you know, for a focus group. You know, typically you're going to earn less in one of our online communities over the course of a year than you would doing a single focus group. So one of the things we look to do is to make sure that they understand that the brand that their community member of is really valuing what they have to say. We share with them the, you know, how their input has made a difference in terms of the direction that the brand is going and how, you know, the results of our projects have uh, shifted some of their thinking. So I think that's core too, because I think nowadays it's like the quid pro quo situation. It's like, well, what am I getting out of this, you know, as part of my brand relationship? So we do try to parlay the idea like, okay, you are really like a customer advisor, you know, I mean, you know, with uh, sometimes they may have a love-hate relationship with the brand, you know, if it's like a power utility or an airline or someone that they kind of, you know, simply by sheer geographic coincidence, they got to work with anyway. So we do want to like, you know, give them an opportunity to have a voice and feel that they're empowered. And again, that's, you know, something that we just feel works the best in terms of like getting the the most out of them. And then, you know, attention into the community. I think what you said really resonates. I mean, obviously, the incentives are kind of cost of entry, but I do find that people who participate in a lot of this research want to know that their voice is heard. They want to know how they've impacted change. And for, for the value of you guys sharing back how they contributed to some of those things or changes or decisions have to be highly effective. We do look to give that kind of reciprocity. Yeah. You know, if you think about like, you know, what folks do and spend a lot of their time with, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, or even managing your fantasy football roster. I mean, there's no real economic incentive to do those things. It's more a matter of like the social interaction that you're getting your reinforcement from. So we look to tie into that as much as possible. Very cool. So let's shift gears. I know you've been working on something new and different and kind of focusing on a different use case of traditional communities, and that is innovation. Tell me a little bit more about your product, Crowdweaving, and how you came about to develop it. Well, Crowdweaving came about because we felt we were kind of just offering platitudes to this idea of being customer-centric and putting the customer at the inception of the product innovation process because most market research tools are reactive. You know, there's basically you send out some sort of stimuli or a concept, the person has an opportunity to react, you get their feedback, and maybe then you then iterate and prototype. 
But again, the customers left, you know, essentially where they're in a more passive reacting fashion. The concept's already developed. Exactly. And they're reacting to it. And then we can help improve it. And then maybe you get, you know, a second concept and a, you know, second set of usual suspects to run it by. So what we wanted to do, and, you know, I guess where it came about is like, quite frankly, I kind of felt like from the point of view of a participant that where is my voice in all of this? When do I get a chance to say what I think they should be doing? So that's where Crowdwomen came about. It was somewhat inspired by the idea of A, the wisdom of crowds the, the, by Soraki, and then crowdsourcing, uh, which is uh, the book by uh, Jeff Howe. And so we kind of played off of those two. And so we go, well, it's not really crowd sourcing because the crowd doesn't have enough of the uh, simple, you know, intellectual understanding of the brand to come up with new products. But that doesn't mean that if we use them for inspiration at the beginning, that we can't reach a better starting point. And so that was the idea. So crowd waving is essentially uh, stripped down. It's a three-step process where companies will issue a somewhat transparent challenge. You know, hey, we're looking to, you know, do something uh, differently. Here are some of the, you know, guardrails, if you will, to what we're, we're thinking about. But how would you approach it? And then it allows for then independent ideation, which is, you know, kept blind. So people, we don't get that kind of bias effect. And then we bring it into a collaborative phase where folks then can look at different ideas. They get to rate them. They get to rank them. They comment on them. For yourself, you get a notification if you've had an idea, you know, you know how your idea is standing. Is it moving up? Is it moving down? By the way, you've got some comments that'll help make your idea better. So we try to bring in some gamification. And then we bring the client along throughout because that's really important. You know, again, it's crowd weaving. The client's got to be involved in this so that they're feeling not threatened by their customers, but inspired by them. They're part of the process. They can ask some questions. We've had clients sometimes that have been inspired enough by what they're hearing that they start devising uh, concept prototypes in the middle of the process that we can put out for exploration. That's the idea behind uh, crowd weaving is really to flip the relationship from the customer to where they're always in a reacting stage where they actually start off the ideation process, you know, right from the inception of the business challenge. And in so doing, the way that they go about it and the unmet needs that become apparent then become the inspiration to the internal creatives. And again, hopefully gets them at a better starting point than if they just come up with things on their own and all they were doing was just sending concepts to, for the customers to react to. So it's almost like building something in the ivory tower and saying, hey, let's go test this versus really getting feedback from potential customers as to where is the white space, what need is unmet, and being able to develop that. I guess the success of crowd weaving would be, you know, legitimate ideas or concepts that come out of this for the brand to potentially then ideate on and, and conceptualize. Exactly. I mean, one real world example is one project we did for an airline where they were looking to devise their uh, in-flight entertainment system in the future. And so that was a challenge they put out to frequent flyers. And meanwhile, I mean, their own internal you know, tech folks had all these great tech ideas that they were going to put into the planes moving forward. But what they started to hear from passengers was not as much about the tech as they did about you know, making it personal and customized to me. Like, don't 
make me feel like just like a number, you know, on your bus in the sky, but, you know, do things that use the technology to help me feel, you know, a little bit more connected, you know, for instance, like you sit down in your seat and, you know, you get like, you know, the, the monitor in front of you welcomes you to the plane, tells you the status of your connecting flight, lets you know that your luggage is on board, tells you where, you know, the gate where your connecting flight is going to be, asks you if you want to pick up the movie you've just been watching at, you know, the club, you know, just all these different things. So that was a completely different direction than they were going to go. And that's what I said before. From there, it gave them a different starting point. So now the technology they were going to bring into play, you know, again, it's a tool, it's a means to an end, but they started building it all around this idea of personalization. Interesting. So I have a challenging question for you. Not that the other questions weren't challenging, but like when I think about the great innovators, you know, Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, like, you know, they somehow saw into the future. And it's almost as if their philosophy was, if I build it, they will come. And we've heard that theory, especially in the tech world. So when you think about innovation, are there different types of innovation that you focus on, right? There's kind of this incremental innovation where you have an existing product and you're kind of thinking about where is the white space. And then there's this innovation that's like so far out into the future that for many, it's unimaginable. What's your perspective on that? I think it's hard for companies to really achieve that kind of disruptive innovation because of the fact the nature of the corporation is to be risk adverse. Right. It cuts against the grain. And I think it's the idea is we need to be disruptive. And then, you know, you have like, you know, a meeting that says that at the higher levels, but then, you know, it doesn't really resonate down. Uh, So that's just, you know, an intriguing sort of political situation that hinders companies. But you mentioned like the great, it's a bit of a myth, this idea of the, the single, you know, great inventor, if you will. And you mentioned a Henry Ford quote, which I find really interesting. And especially I, you know, it can be sometimes thrown out there as a sort of this at the customer. Like when he said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And then, you know, it was actually the Harvard Business Review that basically said that, you know what, Henry Ford never said that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it turned out that the earliest, uh, you know, they Googled it. And the earliest mention they ever found was right around the year 2000. As best they can figure out, it was actually used by some design teams out of California that were being criticized for not being customer-centric. And so they started using it in the third person, and it became adopted. It's, so it's actually an urban myth. Now, Steve Jobs, I mean, that's a bit of a different situation. I would argue that the man was just a natural ethnographer. I think he was just wonderful at seeing unmet needs and then using technology to meet the needs. So, I mean, I think that's an, you know, a case of just one outstanding genius too. But for most organizations, I think it is one thing to say you're customer centric and you're willing to embrace innovation, but it's hard to break down the barriers to really let your customers participate and also allow for innovation to take place. I think that's why some companies, I know like P&G, for instance, they set up almost like, you know, outside the mothership for different brands to kind of take root before they bring them in because they just wouldn't survive. So it's a challenge. And, you know, it's one of the things, I mean, we've been doing this a little bit for the couple of years now. I've made my share of mistakes with the airline industry. First project we did with them, again, 
I underestimated internal politics. I didn't have the employees or the internal constituents involved in the process. So rather than feel that they were being inspired by the customer, they felt threatened. So that was something I had to course correct to make sure that they were really part of it from the beginning. So it almost seemed like it was their idea. So they're different things. And then also, you know, this idea of the wisdom of crowds versus the madness of crowds, a bit of a pH balance in terms of independent ideation, because if you do let people collaborate too long, it does lead to consensus and a bit of groupthink. So you want to kind of hold the independent part as long as possible to create appropriate tension and then eventually decide, you know, how you wanted to coalesce around underlying themes. So that was something that I realized that the wisdom of crowds really comes from like the combined aggregate of individuals rather than from them talking together. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So it's been trial by error. I was, you know, I'm a genius in hindsight. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know the statistics, but when you launch a product, there's more failures than successes and it's incremental, right? Yeah, it's fascinating actually, because I'm looking at like Clayton Christensen and, you know, he's done a lot of the work from Harvard Business School on innovation. And obviously he's written the books that have inspired a lot of folks, but his success rate says that it's not changing. So here it is, you know, we've got access to all this incredible data and behavioral economics, et cetera, et cetera, and algorithms. But why aren't products being more successful? So, I mean, to me, that's fascinating. In Especially to your point, we are in such a data-rich environment right now. Yeah. That is to help us be more precise and more calculated in the risks we take. And so with that, you would think that we would be all set. Yeah, with all the data, it's still surprising that the failure rate is consistent over the years. Yeah, you would think that with all these new tools available to us, all the wealth of data, that we would actually see that success rate increasing. But, you know, it really is just staying the same, which to me just speaks to the fact that we're, you know, kind of stuck. You know, again, with the risk adverse nature of organizations, I think there, you know, there's a tendency to just do the incremental innovation and rather than try and knock one, you know, out of the park. Yeah. And I also, you know, think that at least especially those companies that are driven to quarterly earnings and shareholders, I mean, they have to make those trade-offs between short-term, long-term decisions all the time, which I do believe stifles innovation. I think you're hundred percent correct with that. I've seen that you know, way back in the day, but, you know, I've been around long enough for this. I I even saw that with uh, Lucent Technologies, where there was the tendency to try and hit the quarterly numbers. And it took them a while to get out of their sort of phone company mentality of like, you know, the old rotary system. Right. They They were late to change and they were so late to change that it basically fell off the face of the, you know, the corporate landscape. Interesting. So Kevin, one other area I wanted to ask you about with all this innovation and kind of getting at the front end of innovation and new product concepts, bringing the customer in early, I'd imagine you're working with different audiences or customer sets within the client organization, you know, not necessarily your typical consumer insights group. Yeah, that's exactly correct, Seema. That's been interesting. and That's evolved too. You know, let's say the main part of the company that deals with online communities, again, it's within the insight directors. But when we start talking about the crowd-weaving product and its potential for product innovation, then we're talking more innovation officers. And I think that relates back a little bit to what you were saying when you were at SMR. And, you know, that the idea of like being able to provide 
insights to an organization so they can make better decisions is somewhat fluid. And, you know, the idea of like, you know, the insights professional, you know, we may find that, you know, the people that can use our services are changing a bit over time. It's like the Venn diagram is not necessarily set in stone. Yeah, for me, and that's kind of exciting, you know, because I've been around for a while. So it's like, you know, okay, let's make this third act kind of new and fun. More interesting and fun. And right, of course. There we go. So I'm starting that over again. And yeah, to your point, it's a bit of a different audience because yeah, now I'm dealing within that space. It's more likely their title will be more of an innovation director or VP of innovation. And, you know, I think that's happening within organizations too. I think you're seeing, you know, insights, leaders starting to work together with somewhat of the newly formed innovation leaders so that, you know, with the whole idea you know, working together to bring out new products and services that are going to positively affect, you know, the bottom line for organizations. So it's kind of fun to be sort of working in two worlds at the same time. It sounds exciting. And I wish you all the best of luck on this new part of your journey. And I look forward to definitely having you back on and hearing about how it's all going in a little bit. I would love to be back on. I'm sure by then I'll have made a ton of more mistakes and I'll have more advice for your audience to, so that they won't make the same error as I did. But yeah, it's fun to try something different. I'm really look, excited and looking forward to it. Yeah, I commend you on it. It's easy to stay stagnant. It's important to keep moving and trying new things. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. All right. Thanks, Seema. Okay, so you had a chance to listen to the methodology of crowd weaving. Hopefully you guys could understand the benefits of what Kevin is doing. What I still find interesting and I'm going to continue to keep track of is in this day and age of all this research that we have, studies still show there's a high failure rate. And so maybe this, this approach of getting the consumers in early to actually develop product concepts will reduce that risk. We'll have to find out and um, keep on top of it. And I hope to do that. Stay tuned next week for another episode. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.